Hi, good evening. My name is Harish. I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. Grateful to be an alcoholic. Please bear with me till I take off because uh, this is a longer meeting than I normally share for. Um, however, uh, I'll do my best. Um, it's only my story. I can only tell my story. And it's only since I've become an alcoholic that I don't drink. When I used to drink, I used to get accidentally drunk and I never understood why. Um, the other thing which is very pertinent is that I didn't drink too much to become an alcoholic. I drank too much because I am an alcoholic. As you can tell from my tan, I am from Indian origin. I am the youngest of nine brothers and I've also got six sisters. So I'm 14th in a family of 15. My father was not an alcoholic, but with the number of kids that he had, you can imagine that perhaps he had another obsession of the mind. Uh, leave it to your own imagination to see what it was. Um, it's sort of, I was brought up in a Hindu home. Uh, I was educated in a Jewish school. And then I was with the Christian brothers, which weren't very Christian. Um, my early experiences, uh, my childhood, were um, I never had, my mother was physically there, but never emotionally there. And I remember we used to have a nanny who used to look after me. And I remember her scrubbing the floors on her hands and knees as they used to do that in the old days. I was about four years old and I saw her die in front of me. And I was devastated because it was the first at, um, attachment, real attachment that I had to a human being. And then I had my my younger stepsister who looked after I me. Mean, she played mother role. And because she couldn't let, um, get on with my mum, she ran away from home. And it seemed that every time I had somewhat of some mother figure, they either died or passed, you know, or just left the family home. Um, I had been sexually abused during my childhood and uh, in the, whilst I was in the Jewish school. And um, I never told anybody about that episode of my life. And I just plodded along and um, went to the Christian Brothers School. And over there, you know, I was constantly, constantly humiliated. I don't remember any praise in my childhood, just constant put downs. And my general feeling as a child was always one of constant fear and anxiety and always feeling less than. Today, I understand that to be shame-based. Um, and um, at the age of 11, you know, uh, my, my eldest real sister helped me, um, you know, with my studies and that. In those days, for those of you who are old enough, there, there was an exam called the 11 plus. And, um, you, know, you know, with the help of my sister, I managed to pass. And I remember my headmaster telling me, uh, Mr. Virumal, it's a miracle you've passed. You know, again, I was always humiliated and criticized. Absolutely no praise. So it's very good, very difficult to feel good, good about yourself if, you know, if there's constant um, adversity, praise, uh, sorry, praise was non-existent, criticism, put downs, was the norm. Uh, in my family home, where they, we used to entertain quite a lot. And um, I was the little child who would always drink the leftovers at, at dinner parties. You know, I was sort of, well, I think I was a cute child who used to finish the last bit of liqueur or the last um, piece of, you know, uh, liqueur or whiskey or whatever it was that was going on. And my father's best friend, um, used to call me Nashay. Nashay in Indian means drunk. And either he was a fortune teller for what was to come. Um, at the age of 11, 
I was already seeing a, a, a child psychologist because, like I said, you know, I suffered uh, high levels of anxiety and fear. I used to be physically ill before going to school because I was just petrified. And fear and anxiety were just my, compa my constant companions during my childhood and always feeling that feeling that I never measured up. I don't know by whose standards, but I just felt that, you know, I was never good enough. Um, so anyway, I managed to go to the grammar school and, um, and at the age of 14, I had my first real drink. And um, when that first drink went down my throat, down, went down my esophagus and hit the pit of my stomach. For the first time in my life, I felt like I thought other normal people felt. You know, I don't relate to people in Alcoholics Anonymous who say they weren't from social drinking to alcoholic drinking. I drank obsessively and excessively from the word go. Every opportunity I got to drink, to drink I used to, um, you know, um, I always I drank obsessively and excessively. And I, at that point, I didn't understand the concept of alcoholism. It took many, many years of further drinking to, to, to understand this illness. And the way I understand it today is that once I ingest alcohol in any shape or form, I can't consistently predict how much I'm going to drink. And the second thing I can't do is I can't consistently predict how I'm going to behave. I had certain values as a child. I had certain code of morals. But as my illness progressed, not only did my drinking get out of hand, but my behavior became more and more unacceptable. And the primary repercussion of alcoholism is constantly living against conscience. Because, you know, I always felt that regret and that remorse. And I had my own private national anthem, which was, I'll promise I'll never do that again. And three days later, I was at it again and again and again. See, what I didn't understand that I have a type of mind that only remembers what alcohol does for me, not to me. It forgot the humiliation and the degradation of the weekend. And then, you know, in the big book, it says the great obsession of every abnormal drinker is some, someday somehow he will be able to control and enjoy his drinking. Many pursued to the gates of insanity or death. I tried every conceivable way to drink like a gentleman. I thought one day I was going to find the right combination and find a drink, you know, and be a sophisticated drinker. Uh, that never happened. Um, you know, I thought my life would be like Little House in the Prairies. But if you are, like, if you're a real alcoholic, that's very unlikely to happen. And as I said, in my earlier years, there was... Um, there was no major consequences. I used to get drunk. My, um, I, my friends used to take me home. They used to get drunk. I used to take them home. And so it went. You know, at the age of 18, I got my driving license. Well, I actually bribed the guy 80 quid in those days. Uh, I paid the guy to give me the license, and he did. And, um, and when the first, within the first six months of my driving, I had three car accidents. Uh, you know, and somehow I couldn't connect the consequences with my drinking, I just thought I had bad luck. You know, I never, you know, you know, I never uh, somehow connected my drinking with a subsequent behavior. Um, and that there was only one time that I've actually been into court and that was for driving with a passenger on the bonnet of the car. And, uh, you know, I was fined on, on my birthday, uh, you know. Um, 
I, it's just daft things like that, you know, and I smile now, but my drinking wasn't very funny. It became very, very, very sad because if it was funny, I'd still be doing it. I got here because I stopped having fun and there was a lot of pain. There was a lot of pain. Um, I wasn't very successful with the ladies because I was petrified of rejection. I always felt that people were going to shun me away. I had always that feeling, if you really got to know me, you wouldn't really like me because I detested myself. The self-loathing was incredible. Um, so, you know, uh, Harish was not Harish's friend. Harish was not Harish's friend. And um, eventually in about, uh, it must be the last, it must have been 19 or 20, I met the lady who was then going to become my wife at my local pub. And um, she was the first lady who gave herself sexually and emotionally to me. And I don't mean this with any disrespect because she's a lovely lady. But, you know, I was so starved for affection. I hung on like a bloody leech because I didn't question the person's suitability or sanity. I just thought, you know, somebody finally fucking loves me. And what started as a great romance ended in the worst nightmare that any human being should go through. Because like I said at the very beginning, you know, I am a real Jekyll and Hyde. I could be Jack the Lad at the pub and a bloody terror at home, you know. And um, I'm not going to go into every war story, but, you know, my, my behavior started becoming more and more socially unacceptable. I started getting into fights, uh, behaving inappropriately. Uh, you know, I used to embarrass my friends because I did have, I'd had like, two sets of friends I had, of what I call my normal friends in, in inverted commas, and my alcoholic friends. And, but my, my normal friends could never keep up with the pace. And I used to get bored. So I used to move to with them and shift to the other uh, circle of friends that I had. And um, what started happening was that, the, you know, this, they call this the lonely illness because eventually you not only become ostracized from society and from your family, you know, uh, people will just push you away at the end um, because I was a total liability. You know, one of my best friends, uh, in one, uh, one of our blackouts, I, I, I ripped part of his chest uh, in a blackout. Um, and for obvious reasons, uh, he didn't speak to me for quite a long time. And, you know, my friends just started, stopped inviting me around to their parties or social events because they didn't know which Harish was going to turn up. You know, we didn't know it was going to be happy-go-lucky Harish or violent Harish, you know. Um, in regards to my wife and my family, when I say, when I pick up a drink, anything can happen. Basically, anything can happen. Mm -hmm. I, had a, I had my four-year-old daughter hanging out of a four-story balcony in a, in a blackout. I could have killed that child and not known about it. Nine months before I actually stopped drinking, you know, my wife tried to commit suicide because living with me had become unbearable. You know, I was um, emotionally, mentally, and physically abusive. Um, and I was always, uh, there would be times where I would be with genuine remorse and tears rolling down my eyes, a promise that will never happen again. And three days later, the same old story. It happened again and again, despite my best efforts. Because at the time, I really meant it. At the time, I really meant it. And I couldn't understand why I kept on getting drunk when I didn't want to. Um, eventually, in the, I think it was early 1986, 
like I said, my wife tried to commit suicide and ended up in the hospital. And I told her, please don't tell the psychiatrist what happens when I drink. I won't drink no more whiskey because I thought whiskey was the problem. So I changed to gin or whatever it was in those days. But the, <laughs> the final result was I ended up totally intoxicated because this is not whiskeyism or Bacardiism or beerism. This is alcoholism. So however I ingest alcohol, I always finish up intoxicated, you know, and like I said earlier on, you know, I was always looking for that right combination to drink like a gentleman. Uh, so my, my drinking was not mentioned during the meeting with my wife and the psychiatrist. And he said, you know, he asked me what the problem, what I thought the problem was. And I thought, well, we don't have enough sex. That was, I was about 26, 27 years old. And he suggested that she take a break from me and go to London and stay with her parents and sort of like uh, try to come back after a month and try to reconcile and start the, to the romance again. And during this period of a month, see, I have an illness that I can't see past my nose. The selfishness and the self-centeredness, you know, uh, was such that I used to, after work, I used to have my bottle of Black Label every evening and um, pour myself a scotch. I play the sad songs. I know if you have, any of you know the songs of Commodore's still and i would play i would play that song drink more whiskey you know f be full of self-pity rewind the song play it again drink more scotch you know because there was a perversity because i like to feel the pain a bit deeper not knowing what, that i was the one who had, had instigated all this that was the insanity of violence i just mm -hmm. couldn't see with any clarity what the hell was happening and um you know, this carried on for about a month. And then when my wife came back after a month, what was supposed to be a romantic night out, uh, you know, we all got dressed up and went out for a meal with another couple. And uh, we went to a restaurant and then we went to another discotheque and another discotheque. And Harish did one of his usual numbers. Um, I drank some, I can't remember what I drank, but whatever I drank, I finished quite intoxicated and I, and I hit the barman in one of the, discotheques in the town where I live now. And um, I was put in the back of the car. Uh, I, had, I had passed out and, um, and my wife, well, this was supposed to be the first night that we were supposed to reconcile. We were young, we were horny, <laughs> and we wanted to have a, a reconciliation. And I just spoiled it because um, I was put in the back of the car and my wife, just shouted down a local main street, which is only a small town of two and a half square miles. I'm not going back with that effing animal. I'm not going back with that effing animal. And that is what I had become. You know, I had started becoming totally unacceptable to others and to a degree to myself as well. And then a few weeks later, you know, I had never been unfaithful to my wife. A few weeks later, I was out with the boys and they suggested to go to a brothel and uh, we went to a brothel and in my blackout, I told my wife what I had done with a prostitute in detail. And that was the last nails in the coffin. And the next morning, I, uh, you know, uh, she had a long face and she said, uh, you know what you did yesterday? And I said, no, what did you She said, you came home, you asked me to hug you and then you described the, what you did, what you did with, your, with the hooker in detail. And that was the last nails on the coffin. So, you know, it, I was just going down, you know, I was 
I was getting worse and worse, not only in the drinking, but in the behavior. And in the, the summer of 1986, I found out that my wife was having an affair with my best friend. And um, there was a big halabaloo. There was knives involved, there was blades involved. My wife tried to cut her wrists. And I kept, went around chasing this guy with a kitchen knife. I broke into his house. And to cut a long story short, the following morning, uh, a sergeant and two cops came to my house to take the children away and told me that they could come for the protection of the child, for the children, because I was a very violent drunk. And I was totally, totally humiliated because where I lived was in the same building where I used to do business with people in that, in that building. And now my secret was out. Everybody knew. Um, I didn't know what to do. And a friend of mine came over from London and he said, Harris, you're in trouble. And I said, yeah. He says, why do you come to, I didn't want to see a psychiatrist or psychologist in Gibraltar because then everybody was not going to know I was nuts. So <laughs> I said, I'll go over to London. And I went to see a, a psychologist in London. I think it was Dr. Tiderman. And, um, And, you know, I was riddled. I was riddled with guilt and with shame. And when I first to, went to my first uh, encounter with this psychologist, you know, I was, I had so much guilt and shame. And I thought, I'm not going to say anything. And, I, and I, what happened was I had like a big emotional vomit. I can't describe it any other way. I just needed to download all those secrets which I had kept for such a long time when I was drinking. And in our second meeting, he asked me, Mr. Virumal, do you? Do you drink a lot? And I said, well, I'm drinking a lot because my wife has left me. Not, and you know, it's the way the alcoholic chooses his words. It's not my wife has left me because I drink a lot. It's I drink, I've, you know, I drink a lot because my wife has left me. And um, um, what, what then happened was he, I don't recall him describing uh, what alcoholism was. I had no, absolutely no idea. All I understood at the time was he, he was saying either your marriage or, or your drinking. I, mean, I still want, despite my wife being unfaithful, I, I still wanted to reconcile. And um, I came back to Gibraltar on the 14th of September, 1986, which was my daughter's birthday and what was hopefully my last drink. I came back to Gibraltar, yeah, 14th of September, 1986. And I went to my GP uh, and uh, the psychologist asked me to get, gave me a prescription for antibiotics. And the GP, I was, I was no longer in denial. I told the doctor what was happening, and he said, "Look, Harish, if you want to, if you want to drink, you're not going to take the antibiotics." He says, "Why don't you go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous?" And I was greatly, greatly offended. I said, "How could I possibly be an alcoholic? I'm a businessman. I'm a secretary of a sporting association. I had preconceived ideas of what an alcoholic was, but I was in so much emotional pain that I conceded to meet." with one of these guys on a one-to-one -one basis. So he told me, we meet at the Angry Friar. You know, I thought we'd have a couple of pints and talk about this and see a way out. And he said, no, no, we're going to cross the way in the King's Chapel. And this guy started telling me his story. And he, he described himself as an alcoholic. And I thought, you know, I, I thought to myself, this little bastard has been speaking to my wife because everything he's done, I've done. And if he's an alcoholic, I must be one too. You know, and he, he said the three simple things. He said, Harish, if you come to meetings, don't pick up the first drink one day at a time and ask for help. You never need to drink again. And so far, uh, the promise has been true. 
and that's just over 36 and a half years ago. Um, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I was basically illiterate, you know, so, and AA in Gibraltar was very, very new. It was like the Stone Ages. I think we had one big book between the seven of us. And some of people actually said, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not advocating this, says if you read the book, book, you might get drunk, you know, shit like that, you know. But uh, I really didn't know what to do. I really didn't know what to do. There are people who come to Alcoholics Anonymous and have go through the direct route and work the steps and they're taken by a sponsor. We had no sponsorship. We had, you know, there, there wasn't any real guidance. So it's just perseverance. And oftentimes I used to hear some uh, visitors come and I knew there was something different about them. So I used to have coffee with them and we used to exchange stuff. And like I was speaking to Jill before, you know, we used to, they used to give me a lot of uh, tapes in those days, you know, Father Martin tapes, Bobo, Clancy and people like that. So basically, you know, I was supported with these members, but, you know, um, I didn't really understand what was required. I thought abstinence, obviously, I never knocked physical sobriety because there's some days where my head's up my ass and the best I can do for that day is not pick up a drink. But I didn't understand what emotional sobriety was. So what's happened in these last 36 years? They say that God gives his best soldiers the strongest battles. Well, he must think I'm Rambo because in, you know, in the last 36 years, I've had seven of, yeah, seven of my brothers dying. Uh, only when uh, Janesta called me last week, my brother died last, uh, last uh, Sunday. He had both legs amputated and he had an aneurysm. I've had another brother who died when I was two years sober who committed suicide due to this illness. I've had another brother who died of cirrhosis of the liver. I'm the youngest of the nine and uh, seven of them have gone. <laughs> you know, so there has been great adversity in my recovery. Uh, I also had an, a 38-year-old girlfriend who, who died in 1997. One of the hardest years that I had in my recovery was 1997. Um, I was, um, was forced out of the family business and I lost a lot, a lot of money, um, you know, big figures. And um, then in 15th of October, 1987, my 38-year-old girlfriend passed away. Shortly after, I was told that uh, I had hepatitis C. And then a few weeks after that, I was told my, my eldest daughter had been sexually abused by the stepfather. You know, all this is in a period of 10 months. But, you know, one thing I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous is that my sobriety is not negotiable. You know, because if I have one more excuse to pick up a drink, I haven't taken the last drink, my last drink, because I'm not going to do the things necessary to attain and maintain my sobriety. So what the program has given me is the emotional and spiritual resources to face life as life is and not as Irish wants it to be. You know, both my parents also died. One, my father died five, uh, five days before my sister's wedding and my mother died in 2001. She, both, she had both legs amputated and 10 months later, my brother died of cirrhosis of the liver. Um, so there's been family losses. There's been financial losses. There's been romantic losses. But that's, that's life. It's not because I'm an alcoholic that these ha things happen to me. It happens to many people, you know? So I'm not special and different. What I do have to be aware of is that I came in for my drinking, but I have to stay for my thinking. You know, in early recovery, we hear things like, you know, uh, 
stinking thinking leads to drinking. Or poor me, poor me, poor me another. Or the one I hate most is the one, terminal uniqueness. If you had my problems, you'd drink too, which is a load of bollocks. You know, I mean, I've seen people, who, the people who inspired me in early recovery. I went to Manchester. Uh, sorry, I'm jumping all over the place, but I went to Manchester in my early recovery. And there was a guy who was over 20 years sober. He used to go in a wheelchair and he had a rubbering under his bum. And he was dying of cancer. And people think, John, why do you go to meetings 20 years on? He was so grateful for his sobriety that he felt an obligation to pass this message on to others. You know, one of the things that, you know, as I said, you know, I used to be very embarrassed when I first came to the meetings because I couldn't read. And I used to mumble under my breath in case you guys would laugh at me because I didn't know how to put two words together. But I do remember, I do remember getting a little pamphlet in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it says 15 points to get sober. And one of those points was develop an attitude of gratitude. Develop an attitude of gratitude. Now, if I have to develop something, the implication is that I don't have it because I was a selfish, self-centered little bastard. You know, so I am, you know, I try to be uh, grateful for everything that happens in my life. You know, just the fact of being physically sober, that I'm not retching, that I'm not puking, that I'm not living constantly against conscience, that I, you know, I'm constantly living, you know, in a war, in an internal war. Um, uh, and like I, I said earlier on, you know, when um, I was very reluctant to ask for help, so much so that, you know, when in my early recovery, when old timers would say, Harish, how are you feeling? I would say, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I would go home, put the covers over my head and cry like a child because the emotional pain was overwhelming. The only time I contemplated taking my life wasn't when I was drinking. It was when I was sober because I just couldn't stand what was going on in my head and my heart. You know, the emotions became too much and I couldn't tell you guys, hey, listen, please help me. I don't know how to do this. You know, there comes up in, in chapter 11 of the big book, uh, um, a vision for you. It says, there comes a point in time in the life of the alcoholic where he cannot see life with alcohol or without it. He's at the jumping off place. And I was at that place. I was abstinent from alcohol, but my head and my emotions was all over the place. So emotional sobriety was still stay way off. And what I have discovered in the years that I've been sober is that uh, I really have to make some sort of transition. I had problem with the word God because, like I said, I came from a Hindu home. I was at the Jewish school and with the Christian brothers. And I'm so glad that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous did not prostitute a God. You bought your own. And that was so good. You know, um, I think the only difference between me and God today is that God doesn't wake up thinking he's me. You know, uh, and what, what a great relief that is. Um, what else has happened in these last 36 years? Yeah, I told you that my parents have passed away. And, you know, um, this lady who had tried to commit suicide um, just over 36 years ago, uh, I have been able to make, to make restitution to this lady. And um, she, she's very, very ill. Uh, she's with COPD. She's got various ailments. However, whenever she needs a holiday, she comes and sees me. This is a woman who tried to commit suicide 
because living with me and she comes to see me or whenever I go to London I stay with her there's no romantic or sexual involvement but we're just great friends and you know I've been able to make a have a reconciliation um in regards to my daughter you know my daughter was another person I needed to make restitution to you know um for the first two years of my recovery she used to come and tell me I hate you and as a parent it used to cut me up something rotten and um she was four years old at the time and she said dad you were going to throw me out a four-story balcony and all i could say was look dad was very ill and he's trying to get well now you know that girl is 40 years old now and basically most days she rings me twice not every day but most days she rings me up at nine o'clock in the morning on her way to work and on the way back to work to tell me she loves me you know this last uh, two weeks i've had both my daughters here with me with the, with my son-in-laws I, I've had my two granddaughters with me, and you know, that is priceless. You know, why would I want to pick up a drink and and lose everything? You know, my sobriety is more important today, thirty six years on, than it was the first day I was here, because I've got so much more to lose. You know, there's so much more to lose, and um, what else has happened? You know, um, for for whatever reason best known to my higher power um um because i hate to admit but you know in my early recovery i was a uh, basically a two-stepper but it seems that that you know first step and 12th step um because i didn't know much over the rest of the program however it seems that the higher power put me at the right place at the right time to pass whatever little i had learned to others so you know I've been able to pass the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was also, and I don't mean this to brag, but I was also founder of the first Spanish group in the south of Spain in La Linea. Um, and, um, you know, I, um, what have I done? Yeah, I've, I've, I've done three television programs. I've, I've addressed conventions with seven, 800 people. And that's from a boy who couldn't put two words together. That's not a, a bad journey. Um, you know, it's been, it's been a great, great journey. Um, what else? Yeah. Um, I'm running out. Sorry. Um, this just something I'd like to read from as Bill sees it. And I think this explains, oh yeah, it was, it's linked with gratitude because gratitude for me is not just a list of things to be grateful for. You know, I think gratitude is action and the 12th step is gratitude and action. You know, that is, you know, it's very well to feel grateful. Well, how do I show my gratitude? And the way I show my gratitude is by being of service to others. Yeah. Uh, if I may, I'd, I'd just like to read this from Ms. Bill Caesar. And it says, a full and thankful heart. One exercise that I practiced is to try for a full inventory of my blessings and then for a right acceptance of the many gifts that are mine, both temporal and spiritual. Here I try to achieve a state of joyful gratitude. When such a brand of gratitude is repeatedly affirmed and pondered, it can finally displace the natural tendency to congratulate myself on whatever progress I may have been enabled to make in some areas of living. And this is the part I like best. I try hard to hold fast to the truth that a full and thankful heart cannot entertain great conceits. When brimming with gratitude, one heart, heart's beat must surely result in outgoing love, the finest emotion that we can ever know. You know, we've been given such a gift of sobriety. You know, how can I best pay, pay this back?
through service. Um, and I think I'll keep my mouth shut because I'm waffling now. Thanks. <laughs>